Welcome back, baseball fans, to episode eight of Rounding Third, the baseball podcast. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. James, let's jump right into it. We got a big episode today. Lots of MLB news, lots of controversial topics to cover. This is going to be a good one. Yeah, I mean, I'm stoked for this. I know you're stoked for this. And uh, fans, how about that intro? I mean, we are coming along. <laughs> we are bringing it here, giving it our best shot, rounding third, uh, and really not a better episode to start incorporating some changes. We're thrilled. There is some scorching hot baseball news. Um, coming up in the bag for you, I'll just run you through what we want to talk about. Obviously, we have to talk about the Hall of Fame. Uh, the whole baseball world is losing its mind right now, uh, rightfully so. Rightfully so. We will explore that. We're going to talk we'll uh, the that. meetings between <laughs> between uh, players' union. Um, we'll talk, you know, lockout stuff. Uh, so really, ton of news. Awesome episode ahead. What do you think, Max? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be good. We got a lot of topics. Um, Good news and bad news surrounding the Hall of Fame. Talks picking up in the lockout. You know, they had back-to-back meetings this week. And just a reminder, timestamps are in the description. If you don't want to, you know, listen to the lockout news, you can jump around. Um, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Let's talk about the Hall of Fame. This is kind of fresh off the press. Earlier this week, the 2022 Hall of Fame class voted in by the writers, not the Veterans Committee. The writers voted um, and lots to cover here. Um, so there's lots of things to note here. Most importantly, it was the final year on the ballot for notable controversial players, including Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, who we've spoke about both of them in recent episodes, Kurt Schilling and Sammy Sosa. And it was also the first year on the ballot for notable players, such as Alex Rodriguez, Jimmy Rollins, and one and done, one time on the ballot, and he's in. The only inductee this year, Big Poppy David Ortiz. David Ortiz, absolute legend. No matter how you slice it, Yankees fan, whatever. If you hate ALE's team, doesn't matter. This dude was a tank, definitely a huge face, cornerstone of baseball in the last 20 years, which, by the way, 20-year career. But as Max said, David Ortiz, first ballot, Check the box. He's the only guy going to Cooperstown, one and done Ortiz. Love it from Big Poppy. Yeah, so we talked about the Hall of Fame before. As a reminder, you need 75%. Um, so you need to be on the ballot on 75% of the writers' ballots um, to, to get inducted in the Hall of Fame. Big Poppy got in with 77.92% of the vote. And he, no, although he's the only one who was voted in by the writers, let's let's not forget earlier this year there were inductees uh, by the Veterans Committee. So he'll join Buck O'Neill, Bud Fowler, Jim Cat, Tony Oliva, Gil Hodges, and Minnie Manuso uh, in the 2022 Hall of Fame class. But he is the only one voted in by the writers. Just a quick shout out, Gil Hodges, uh, absolute Brooklyn legend, LA legend. Um, but yeah. I mean, Max kind of nailed it there. Veterans Committee, for everyone else, 
Big Poppy, only guy who really kind of did it in the spirit of the game, which I hope in this conversation we're going to unpack why the writers are in charge of this a little bit because I'm skeptical at this point. But, you know, I think real quick, just to explain the Hall of Fame stuff for anyone, as you said, 75% of ballots, the way this works, writers, everyone who's eligible to write um, this year, actually, let me pull the exact number. Um, I believe it was a total of, uh, oh, how many? I think it's in the 400s or something. Yeah, it's about 400-ish. So of all those writers, every writer gets up to three selections. um, And that means you can only pick three of them. And then, of course, you have to be on 75% of all ballots. Um, and here's the exact number. It's 394 for the 2022. That's how many ballots were submitted. Um, so, And it's normally it's exactly 400. Six people did not turn in ballots. So six blanks. Um, but, yeah, so you yeah. have to choose up to three players. That's how the process goes. Yeah, I mean, so so you, I think it's you choose up to 10 players. You can fill out at least 10 players on your ballot. I know Ken Rosenthal mentioned he put 10. Um, there, there are numerous players. So like, like uh, James said, you need to get 75% of the vote to get in. If you fall under 5%, which some players did, and we'll talk about that, you are no longer on the ballot. But just to keep it on Big Poppy for a little bit, you know, this is for sure uh, a Hall of Famer, first ballot Hall of Famer. 20-season career, 10-time All-Star, three-time World Series champ, career 286 average, 380 on base, um, 541 home runs, seven-time Silver Slugger. I mean, everyone knows Big Poppy for his long career as DH and first baseman for the Boston Red Sox. Um, and, I, and I think I wanted to throw this in there because this was like on a personal anecdotal level, um, I remember Big Poppy really well from the 2013 World Series. So... I, I've been a Cardinal fan for, you know, like 15, 16 years of my life, whatever. And I can for sure say without a shadow of a doubt that no one player has ever struck more fear in me than he did during that 2013 World Series every time he stepped up to the plate. You know, it's been talked about before, all-time World Series performances, but Big Poppy in this series, he went 11 for 16, batted 688, two homers, two doubles, six RBIs was walked eight times, was intentionally walked four times, had an OPS at two, scored seven runs. Obviously, the Red Sox beat the Cardinals that year in 2013 in six games. But, I mean, going 11 for 16 is amazing. And not only that, 11 of your hits, two home runs, two doubles. He also got robbed of a grand slam by Carlos Beltran that year. But, I mean, I mean, the, the stats for that series just speak for themselves. And I just remember, you know, Every time the the Red Sox are up to bat, you're just watching the lineup, trying to avoid getting back to Big Poppy, hoping it comes up in some situation where you can walk him. I mean, it was just, it was really a remarkable thing to watch him at his peak in that series. Um, and then that was something that will always stick with me. So that, that's kind of a personal anecdote about Big Poppy that, you know, he, he was truly incredible during his 20-season career. Well, you know what? I want to piggyback that off, and that's your personal anecdote from the 2013 World Series. The signature moment of his career, the one that you say, Big Poppy, what I play in my head, is the ALCS of that same year, 2013. It's game two, Boston Red Sox, Detroit Tigers. Bottom of the eighth, they're down four. 
about all hope is lost. Big Poppy at the plate. Doesn't matter. Bases loaded. Big salami. Absolute moon rock. Out of the park. Two outs. It's literally what you dream of in the backyard. Smashes it. Booyah. I mean, that was the most poppy. Just here you go. Poppy salami. It was an incredible moment. And to me, that's the signature of what was an incredible career. Uh, And really, Max, I pose a question to you. Is Poppy the best DH of all time? Jeez. I mean, it's, I mean, he's got to be up there. I mean, he's obviously a hall of famer, first ballot hall of famer. There aren't a lot of first ballot hall of famers in general. And so I would probably say if he's not the best, then he's definitely in the top three, I would say. Um, But I mean, I don't know. I mean, who else is even up there? I, 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 I'm trying to think of other great DHs. You know, there's some interesting ones. You know, what What also happens is you just have these players in an interleague play get, get to play here and there, and they right. rotate around. Um, so I don't know. I mean, recency bias, I put them there uh, as the best. But, of course, I, I bet I'm missing someone or there's someone slipping my mind right now. But I just, when I think of the DH position, I just think of a big pop because he would play at first base in interleague play. But, I mean – he was pretty piss poor in the field. Let's be honest. If it wasn't for what he could do with a baseball bat, he's not sniffing the Hall of Fame. Um, I'm pretty sure his defensive war, which is wins above replacement, is negative. Uh, but, of course, <laughs> you're not signing Big Poppy to play defense. You're signing him to absolutely crush baseballs, which he did. Yeah, and that, that grand slam that you mentioned, I mean, like, if, if you haven't seen that, I would say pause this podcast right now and go look up that home run. Just look up Big Poppy Grand Slam. I mean, that is just an iconic baseball moment. It just slips it over the right field wall. The cop is there, raises his hands, too. I mean, everything about it is amazing. It's a great – it's maybe top five moment in baseball over the last – you know, decade and some change. It, it's got to be just incredible. And David Ortiz is a super likable guy. And I can't believe we made it this far without covering the fact that he was like shot. Like he was attacked in the DR <laughs> yeah. two or three years ago. And it kind of slipped everyone's mind shot, but like he's fine. He looked great in the video. The Red Sox posted of him, him getting the call live that he was going to Cooperstown. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, I mean, maybe not obvious he was going to get in first year because he kind of snuck in with just 77%, but he was going to get in eventually regardless. It's great to see him get in on his first try. Um, How about this? Before we go to Bonds and Schilling and Clemens and all these guys that are kind of a major talking point, um, so like I said, you need to get above 5% to stay on the ballot, and 11 players fell short of that this year. 10 who were there for their first time, notably uh, Tim Lincecum, you know, Giants pitcher, long hair. Everyone knows Tim Lincecum. Ryan Howard, Mark Teixeira, Jonathan Papelbon, Prince Fielder, A.J. Pruszynski, Carl Crawford. Some big names failed to reach that 5% threshold, which, you know, is maybe surprising. You know, you got names on there that everyone knows, like Prince Fielder, uh, Tim Lincecum. But I... I'm not super surprised by this. Some of these players didn't have, you know, long-lasting careers, but maybe I expect them to stay on the ballot for a little bit longer. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. There's a couple of names here that that I can't believe didn't make. And quite frankly, I hate the five percent rule because you know we're having four guys drop off this ballot. I think Prince Fielder, if you take off the Bonds of the world, the Shillings, the Sosas, round up some of those votes. 
I think he stays on the ballot. You know, I think same thing for uh, Lincecum. A.J. Brzezinski is maybe there. Mark Teixeira maybe there. Ryan Howard probably not. But it's still – it surprises me. I can't believe Prince Fielder was a one-and-done and not in the Ortiz fashion, one-and-done off the ballot forever. <laughs> uh, so I guess it, RIP to those players. It speaks to the difficulty of getting into Cooperstown like we, we've talked about before. Um, you know, you think of I, the first thing that comes to my mind is the NBA Hall of Fame that has a much wider class allows, you know, I think if in, in a comparison, I would say if Prince Fielder performed at the same level, but was in the NBA, I would expect him to be an NBA Hall of Famer. Um, but that like we've talked about in our Hall of Fame episode, I think episode two or something, um, Cooperstown is very selective. Um, and we'll talk about more of that when we talk about who didn't get in, but it's, it is very selective. Um, and so it's tough to see some of these players not make it. You know, Tim Lincecum was kind of a staple of those those Giants uh, World Series in the early 2010s. Um, but but I guess that's just, just the way that Cooperstown is. Um, you have any more thoughts on, on those players? No, not really. I mean, I think I would echo your thoughts, though, on Prince Fielder's a great example. I think if you took that comparative, you know, his standing in the league brought it to the NBA. I don't even think there's a question if he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, this is really difficult. Getting into Cooperstown is quite the feat. In some ways, it sucks because you miss a lot of players, but in some ways, it's really fun because it is quite the accomplishment. But I think that kind of tees us up to talk about Maybe the best player to ever play baseball, not in the Hall of Fame. I mean, in just a group of players that not in the Hall of Fame, at least for now, until they hit the Veterans Committee. Right. Like like you said, so just because these players we're about to mention didn't get in because of the writers, they still have a chance to get in when the Today's Era Veterans Committee votes them in uh, or has a chance to vote them in, which we'll see if that happens. But notably, the people we're talking about, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, and Sammy Sosa, it was their 10th time on the ballot, their 10th and final time on the ballot. Barry Bonds ended with 66% of the vote. Obviously, you need 75. Clemens ended with 65. Schilling with 58. And Sosa with 18.5%. Also notably, A-Rod, it was his first time. He's another controversial player because of PED use. He got 32% of the vote in his first year. But but let's talk about these players. I mean, this is the elephant in the room. Just, um, go ahead. Yeah, let's let's kick it off. I, I was just – just on the A-Rod thing real quick, a lot of these is kind of black and – or a very gray, not black and white with the PED use because this kind of happened before testing was super like improved and spot on. There was no question. A-Rod got rung up on multiple steroid positive tests. He did it. That's just my point on him. We can talk about implications of that later, but just yeah, what, and real that quick, is why A-Rod has 32. Yeah. And I, I, I was listening to Ken Rosenthal talk about this uh, last night. He um, he voted for Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, all these guys, but he didn't vote for A-Rod or Manny Ramirez because they tested positive when there was active testing going on and active discouragement of PD use in the MLB. Correct. I, I will say, uh, interestingly enough, the first time that Manny Ramirez got popped with a test, uh, Big Poppy was actually part of that group. This was before it was really defined, uh, but this was the 7-3. The league was trying to figure out how to uh, 
administer with its PED testing things. It really became a league-wide problem. Uh, there was 100 players grabbed that registered a positive test. Ortiz still kind of claims it was an over-the-counter supplement. Um, and then there's never been, now that they've improved the testing, it's never actually popped positive for steroid-type PEDs. So only in that, that big batch test um, – that first got Manny Ramirez was big poppycock, and that was his one one time kind of infraction. So some people will um, talk about that, and I think it is important in the context of what we're about to talk about with Clemens with Bonds. Yeah. So I mean, like I said before, this is kind of the elephant in the room. Uh, it, it didn't really take away from Big Poppy's success, but it was a huge storyline um, with this Hall of Fame vote. Barry Bonds, the all-time home run leader and arguably the greatest hitter. I mean, probably not even arguably, the greatest hitter of all time. Roger Clemens, we know we did a half-hour segment on him last week. One of the best pitchers, if not the best pitcher of all time. Um, and those are the main two we'll focus on. Kurt Schilling is, is a little different because he's not in because of PED, or he's not not in because of PEDs. It's something else. But, I mean, what do you what do you have to say about this? Give me your take do you think these players should be in? Why? Why not? All right. Everyone buckle up, prepare. You may want to drop the volume a notch because I'm angry about this. My whole take is that the Baseball Hall of Fame, Cooper Standard, has one job, and that is to capture and tell the history, the story of baseball, more so Major League Baseball, but the entire sport of baseball. You cannot possibly in any conceivable world – tell the story of baseball without Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. You cannot write that story. That's an incomplete story. Those guys are too damn good to not be part of that story. I think it's an absolute travesty by the writers, and I don't think the Hall of Fame stands for what I think it is. Of course, everyone has maybe a different opinion. I think the Hall of Fame's purpose is to tell that full story, and without these guys, it's not doing that. And so I think you touched on something important there. It, it comes down to what you think the Hall of Fame is about. Um, and I think there's kind of this interesting dynamic here. And there's this kind of line drawn in the sand by the writers at the so-called PED era in baseball. Right. I think so. The, the, the real debate is what is the Hall of Fame and what deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? And like you said, you think it stands for telling the story of baseball. Um, and, and I would agree. And I think to make an assessment about the Hall of Fame, we need to understand who's in the Hall of Fame and what it's included in the past. For example, take Pud Galvin, who in the 1880s used monkey testosterone and pumped it into his body. He's in the Hall of Fame. Or how about the rampant use of amphetamines in the 80s and 90s as pregame rituals? And some of these players are at the apex of baseball history, and they're in the Hall of Fame. Or how about Bud Selig? who's the commissioner in baseball during this whole PED era and also famously contradicted himself many times when discussing his knowledge of these different situations, who was using, who wasn't. Um, and he also leveraged the steroid era to new stadium and TV deals. You know, the, the fame of McGuire and Sosa and that home run race was great for baseball, and he used it to accelerate the sport and gain financial improvements uh, in the media and in stadiums. He's in the Hall of Fame. He was also the commissioner during the owner's collusion scandal in the 90s. So I don't think we can you know, sit here and say that the Hall of Fame is some collection of baseball saints who never did anything wrong. And I think you can also say that you know, 
maybe none of these players or individuals should be allowed in the Hall of Fame at all. And I guess that's fair if that's what you want to do. But that's not the way it is. And there's never been a time in baseball history where it's been completely clean, right? There's just never been a time where it's completely clean. And so it can be very difficult to determine who took what and when and how that plays into their minutes in the Hall of Fame. And so to me, kind of similar to you, I think the Hall stands for a place to celebrate baseball and tell its history and the greatness of some of its players. And I don't see why we why we can't do that with some of these players. Why can't we just you know, right on the plaque was infamous for potential PED use, but was still one of the greatest hitters of all time. I mean, you look at Roger Clemens, who we talked about last week. He has seven Cy Young Awards, and nobody else has more than five. Or Barry Bonds, who has seven MVP awards, and no one else has more than three. And yes, we, I mean, like, we can agree that they weren't clean. I mean, we're not arguing that they didn't take steroids, and, and that's fair, and it's heartbreaking to a lot of fans. You know, I talked to some of my buddies this week who were up in arms about it because they felt robbed or they felt cheated um, by these childhood legends who ended up cheating. And that's fair, and no one's disagreeing with that take. But this is about getting into the Hall of Fame and what deserves and doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. And to me, discluding some of these players seems like an arbitrary line drawn in the sand when you've shown over and over again you're allowing other players and other individuals who either allowed this to happen or contributed to it into the Hall of Fame. Well, and just to build off that, and one more name I want to add to your list is Ty Cobb, um, highest, just insane batting stats. Um, I can't remember right now if, it, if he's highest average or highest uh, OPS, but he's one of those. Uh, or on base percentage, he made a career out of sliding spikes up to injure players trying to turn two, and he was a blatantly, openly racist guy. Openly racist on the field. Like, that's his whole shtick. So, as you said, it, it's not this collection of the the pure, the, the best baseball players ever that acted like saints, right? There are some questionable guys in there. So as you say, it's just an arbitrary line. And and this is something I want to point out. You now have, they've made a statement, the number, the leader all time in hits in major league baseball, Pete Rose will not be in the hall of fame. The leader in home runs all time, Barry Bonds will not be in the hall of fame. The leader in Cy Young's Roger Clemens will not be in the hall of fame. You don't have the leader in pitching awards and home runs or hits in the Hall of Fame. How are you telling the story of baseball? I I mean, I just, it's crazy. Yeah, and and like you said, when you're talking about Ty Cobb and these things he's done, that's kind of, you know, the boat that Curt Schilling's in. Curt Schilling was an amazing pitcher, but he's looked down on a lot because of some heinous things and conspiracy theories that he's thrown out on social media and some heinous things he said. Um, but, but this is the Baseball Hall of Fame. Like you mentioned, you have Ty Cobb, who's blatantly racist. You have a bunch of people in the Hall of Fame who have made millions of mistakes and are not the, the, the grandstanding, amazing um, faces of baseball that, that you might want them to be. So I don't think we should pretend that that's what the Hall of Fame is and then try to sit here and not allow Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens or these players in because, because that's what you think the Hall of Fame is when it's not. And we can say that they cheated, but still say that they should be in the Hall of Fame, which I think is is a point where a lot of people uh, disagree. And I think that's where a lot of people who don't think that these players should be in the Hall of Fame would disagree. 
Well, and let me just build off that with the cheating thing. And one, I'll give my solution, and then I'll give a stat that I really want to share. Why can't we have – and I think this would be absolutely sweet in Cooperstown. Why can't we have a separate room for every great person and just toss them in there? And you go, okay, this is the Hall of Shame section of the Hall of Fame, right? And you understand, okay, these guys are too good to not include in this story, but this is Asterisk Alley, Right. You walk in and here's a little here's one plaque is Hall of Fame plaque. Next to it is the black of what he potentially did or did do. That would be my solution. But let me talk about this stat for the people, because also keep in mind, a lot of these PDs, they don't make you see a 98 mile an hour fastball better. They don't make you react to an 18 inch drop on a breaking ball. But Barry Bond, according to a tweet I saw from Kendall Baker, Barry Bonds, if you take every one of his league leading 762 home runs, and made them an out, he would have a career on base percentage of 384. David Ortiz, who was a first ballot Hall of Famer, has a career on base percentage of 380. That means if you take the greatest home run hitter ever, give him zero home runs, not only zero home runs, make every home run he ever hit an out, he still has a better on base percentage than Ortiz. He has a 20% walk rate. I mean, the stats Barry Bonds has put up are nuts. 2,900 hits, the home runs we've talked about. He, he leads the league in intentional walks at 688. In fact, if you just look at his intentional walk numbers and his walk rate and assume, obviously, if you took the baseball bat out of his hand but assume pitchers still treated him the same way, he still would have a higher on-base percentage than the average MLB on-base percentage without a damn bat. I mean, this guy was a monster Monster, 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 all-time walk leader with 2,500. I mean, it, the average walk rate's 8.7. He was 20.3, all while being the best home run hitter we've seen. Uh, batted a career 298. How is this guy with 2,000 RBIs, or four short of that, I should say, not in your Hall of Fame? Yeah, and I think Jeff Passan wrote a great article for ESPN um, where he kind of talked about an easy way to put them into the Hall of Fame, but still recognize and preserve the history. You know, he wrote an example plaque of what you would have for him, where it says Barry Lamar Bonds, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, 1986-2007. Baseball's home run king with 762. Won seven MVP awards and walked more than any player in history. With fearsome left-handed swings, that single-season home run record was 73 and redefined hitting for a generation. His use of performance-enhancing drugs muddled accomplishments and epitomized MLB steroid era. Hero and villain simultaneously possessed uncommon power-speed combination, made even better by by an eye that helped lead NL in all-base percentage 10 times. That is Barry Bonds, and that is how you preserve history. I mean, like, why can't that be in the Hall of Fame? Why can't we just accept that he did take steroids, but recognize it? Recognize that Barry Bonds was the steroid era. Steroids were extremely prevalent in all of baseball, and you have people in the Hall of Fame already who have used steroids or drugs of other kinds, or, or Bud Selig, for example, who, who allowed it to happen. Why are we discluding some of the greatest players of all time because of some arbitrary line drawn in the sand by, by upset writers? Yeah, and you know, I think there's so many different angles to talk about, and that's one of at a certain point, why are we letting the writers do this? Honestly, like I'd rather uh, uh, alumni commission, you have to have coached or played in the major leagues to vote because when you're doing stuff like this, and of course I think there's some popularity contest here. There has to be. Big Poppy was generally liked by the media. The rest of this list of players was not so much. 
Big Poppy had some muddled waters, maybe not as bad, but still some questionable. And they didn't seem to care. They didn't even ride this out till year two. So you have these people just on their high horse because they're not taking PDs to write articles, which, yeah, of course, I mean, how many words per minute do you need? But it, I mean, that plaque by Jeff Pazin, he nails it. You have to preserve this history. And then I wonder, what does this do for this whole era at large? Because it was defined by PEDs. This era was PEDs. I mean, you look at Sammy Sosa, only 18% of the vote. Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire having that race all the way down the stretch, wire to wire for a saved summer, baseball. saved the sport of baseball, saved it. And I will die on that hill. Baseball would we would not be able to have this podcast without that summer. Legitimately, that's what brought energy back. The San Francisco Giants put out a tweet yesterday, basically going over Barry Bonds' accomplishments. Essentially, thanked him and said we could not have built our new stadium without his revenue-producing abilities. And as you touched on, that's just a reality. And Bud Selig was sitting there counting all the cash to face the whole situation, and now the writers are terrorizing this generation of players and it's like so so do we just get a rod's not going to be in i mean bonds won't be like where do we draw the line and this is where i hope the veterans committee by bringing in the context and looking at the era and understanding these guys were just competing with one another so if if you're going to juice i got to juice look these guys are great get them in the hall or change what the hall is and let's start kicking people out. If we're only, if the hall of fame needs to be the saints of baseball, then let's just make it Lou Gehrig one of one and get out of there. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and I think also, I mean, with you look at Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and all these players, I mean, they played such a vital role in the history of baseball. And one last thing I want to say about this, about the hall of fame in general is that, it's we shouldn't put such a big emphasis on the Hall of Fame, especially when it's such this weird, convoluted voting system where you, you're on it for 10 years and then you go to these weird things called the Veterans Committee that are defined by eras. It, let's just not put so much weight on it. Clearly, they don't want to include certain players for certain reasons and they'll include other players for other reasons. I just think it is what it is. Players don't play to be in the Hall of Fame. Players win, play to win championships um, and World Series. Is, I think that's that's the fact of the matter. But it's just the way it is. Baseball yeah. has a – go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just echoing off that, yeah, I mean, for this, this killed the Hall of Fame to me. I mean, if you don't have Barry Bond, if you're telling me to legitimately consider this the the holy grail, the peak of baseball, and you don't have the all-time leader in hit, the all-time leader in home runs, or the all-time leader in Cy Youngs, one of the best pitchers ever in there, you're not a holy grail. You're not a memorial to anything. You're some weird, arbitrary writer's fantasy. That's all the Hall of Fame is to me anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I don't think we need to kind of drag on on these players. I think we, we got our point across. Um, there's a few other things to mention with the Hall of Fame. Uh, some people climbed. I don't know if you want to talk about this. Scott Rowland jumped to 63%. Go ahead. Yeah, I was. so this is actually what's entertaining. And, of course, to remember with those big names that were taken, even though they didn't get it 66% of the vote and 65 and uh, 54, with those guys clocking off the list, 
that really helps these fringe climbers. So climbers, I would say kind of to look to that we probably will get in the Hall of Fame uh, next year on the 23 ballot or 24. Scott Rowland, he's up to 63 on year five of the vote. So he's trending pretty well. Todd Helton is at 52% on year four. He should already be in. Uh, it's a crime. The writers are holding the fact that he played at Coors Field against them. Like, so now you're upset at a guy because he signed with the team that like drafted him and like he wanted to stay part of that organization. But if he moved, I'm sure the writers would write articles if he forced a trade. So lose, lose there. Uh, also, if you look at the numbers for Coors Field, we explored it. Um, I forget what episode that was. We were talking, oh, when we were talking about, uh, uh, the Orioles, Camden Yards moving their walls. It's really not that crazy. Pitt Todd Helton in the Hall of Fame and the last climber to look out for. Andrew Jones, 41% in year five. I really think that's going to go up. Uh, Andrew Jones, uh, probably the best center fielder of his era. 10 gold gloves. Also nailed 434 homers while doing that. For context, Helton, 2,500 hits and a career 316 batting average. That guy's not in the – I mean, come on. And then uh, Roland is 10th in career war, so wins above replacement of a third baseman. That's the short reason of why they should get in. We'll keep watching those guys climb. And on top of that, some new players that will be on the ballot in 2023. Um, you have Carlos Beltran, a longtime Cardinal, one of, you know, one of the most clutch hitters, postseason hitters of all time. Uh, John Lackey, Jared Weaver, Jacoby Ellsbury. Johnny Peralta, also a former Cardinal, um, Bronson Arroyo, R.A. Dickey, Francisco Rodriguez, J.J. Hardy. There, there are names. A lot. Of, I mean, honestly, a lot of these players won't touch the Hall of Fame. But I, Carlos Beltran, I think, will get in the Hall of Fame for sure. Um, but the rest of the names, it's it's going to be some of those fringe guys that might, you know, float for for eight nine years around thirty percent or so, like like Jeff Kent, who just. Uh, it was his 10th year on the ballot. He only ended with 32%. So some notable names. It's always it's always good to see what the next class will be. Now, I'll say I, I did a sneak peek into the 2024 class because I was kind of underwhelmed with the 2023 Dirty. class. Dirty. Yeah, I, I'm not going to go through that list because we'll save that. But oof, oof, is that a beautiful class coming that is in 2024. So a bit to wait. Uh, and, you know, just to wrap up this Hall of, Hall of Fame thing, this is my last plea for this Veterans Committee of the Modern Era. Use your brain, look at context, evaluate the league, and let the Hall tell the story. Please, dear God, pit Barry Bonds, pit Roger Clements in the Hall of Fame. That's my way to wrap up the Hall of Fame segment. All right, let's jump to current MLB. What is going on with the lockout? Are we going to see baseball? Are we going to see spring training? Are pitchers and catchers going to report on time? I don't know. But progress is being made. Um, after their original January 13th meeting that we touched on, uh, they have met for two straight days. They met this Monday and this Tuesday. On Monday, the players countered with uh, their proposal and then on Tuesday the MLB made another counter proposal so so let's kind of jump into what's going on so all the proposals thus far have centered around what you would call the core economic issues facing the MLB obviously there's other things that are going on the collective bargaining agreement which are you know externally very appealing uh, expanding the playoffs new rules stuff like that's very interesting and 
will be discussed, but there is going to be no progress on this until they um, hash down these core economic issues facing the league. So there, there are a variety of things that they, they touched on. One thing has a lot to do with arbitration. So real quickly, I kind of want to explain what arbitration is because it's really only in baseball and it's kind of dumb. I don't know. Like baseball makes everything so difficult, but arbitration in baseball is the process through which salary numbers for the upcoming season are determined for players that are not yet eligible for free agency. So you have to have six years of service to be eligible for free agency. And this final salary figure is determined by a third party arbiter using proposed numbers from the player and his team as a starting point. You're eligible for arbitration if you've been in the league for at least three years and obviously less than six because then you'd be eligible for free agency. So between three and six years. And one major point of contention for the players is that they want this to be lowered to two years. On top of that, they want to have um, a pool of money basically be available for all the players on arbitration based on their wins above replacement. Um, I, I just want to confirm that. Yeah. So that's basically what arbitration is. Presently, players who take their salary disputes to arbitration have their salaries determined by the arbitration panel. And in that process, the player and team each submit a proposed salary for the upcoming season. And then the panel picks one or the other. There's no splitting the difference between the two proposals, no making accommodations to make one better proposal. Each side's allowed to argue for its chosen figure, which is weird because in essence, it means that the team is trying to diminish the accomplishments of the player. You know, they're trying to say that what he thinks he deserves is too much. So that's basically what arbitration is. A lot of the meetings dealt with that this week. On Monday, they met for two hours, um, and the MLB deputy commissioner, this is kind of crazy. The MLB deputy commissioner, Dan Halem, reportedly informed the players that the league is willing to sacrifice regular season games over key issues. So the MLB is very stern about some of these issues, and they're willing to take financial losses by missing games this season. The union countered the proposal that will be submitted on January 13th. The players are no longer seeking to tie free agency to player age, and they wanted to reduce the arbitration eligibility from three years to two years. James, what do you have to say? Well, yeah, one thing I just want to keep in everyone's mind, sort of thinking about this, when, when we refer to it as the league, because it is league officers, it simply is a collection, the governing body of owners. Um, of course, everyone that works in league offices is really just employed by the group of owners who are keeping this together. So so before you go freak out, I, I miss, I say blame Rob Manfred for everything. I'll always be in that boat. But it really is coming down from the owners that are saying they're willing to sacrifice these games over key issues. Um, as I said last time we talked on this, I have an insider who's told me we really want to get things locked up by mid-February if we do want to stay on track. Uh, the good news is with the frequency of meeting, we got to get these proposals back and forth. And as he said, until we lock in and, and everyone can agree at least on some sort of compromise on the economics, we can't even really talk the fun part of the CBA. Um, which we had a request to talk about our own dreams of the CBA, and maybe we'll get into that uh, on a different episode. 
But yeah, I mean, I think it, it's good. And just on arbitration real quick, it is the stupidest system <laughs> in sports. I, I mean, it makes no sense. You literally had the Dodgers go to arbitration with Cody Bellinger fresh off his MVP season and, and literally sit down and go, I understand you just won an MVP and took us to an NLCS, but no, like no interest. This guy's terrible. Pay him $5 million less than he wants. It, it's such a wild system. Uh, I don't know why we're doing it. You know, baseball is a little laggy here. Like, let's step up with it. At least I like to see them reduce the uh, arbitration eligibility like the players want. Some things to happen there. Um, but we'll see. Um, and then I think really getting into Monday's proposal, I, I'm happy the MLB came back quick on Tuesday because they started to really start throwing numbers out and uh, start to really move this process. Yeah. So on Tuesday, the, then the MLB made a counterproposal to the Players Association, their Monday counterproposal. Um, it wasn't as comprehensive as their initial proposal, but the MLB agreed to the union's proposal of a bonus pool for players in their pre-arbitration years. So that's obviously between zero and three years of service, and it's awarded to players who finish in the top 20 and wins above replacement. The Players Association is seeking a $105 million pool while the MLB countered with just $10 million. So they still remain very far apart on that. Uh, far MLB apart did, is an understatement there. Man. <laughs> yeah. $10 million to 10.05. You were talking 10x. The MLB also agreed to raise the minimum salary to $615,000 for players with zero or one year of service time. Uh, they previously offered six hundred k, and it was five seventy last year. The players are seeking seven seventy five. Um, some other notable highlights: the MLB did not change its proposal for eight hundred and fifty k for players with one to two years of service. That's a minimum salary, and seven hundred k for two to three years. I'm sorry, six fifty. I might have said eight fifty, six fifty. Um, and then the MLB dropped its proposal charges to the arbitration system where the owners proposed replacing arbitration with a pay-for-play system based on players' war. There's a lot of details you can get in the weeds with what all of this really means. Um, but I think it's good to be optimistic that things will continue to move. Two meetings in a row is great progress. Um, but as Jeff Pass tweeted, there's still a lot of work to be done for this agreement. And real quick, just... A lot of what this has to do is about young players and how they deserve to be paid more, which I don't think anybody can argue with. I mean, the best players in the game these days are the young players. You think of Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis, Vlad Jr., who was making a minimum contract last year. Young players have become such a large part of the game. And I think the current economic structure of the league makes it arduous to get compensated at the rate that perhaps they deserve or they're, they're playing shows that they deserve. And this is, it's just another way that baseball is vastly different from other sports. Like why does it have to be so convoluted to get paid? You know, like, well, why do we have to go through this arbitration process? It, it, it really just, it's, it's kind of mind boggling. It seems like it's very anachronistic. Like why can't we just modernize the game and, and really focus on how the young players are taking over the league, basically. Well, you know, just to that point, Cody Bellinger won an MVP literally in pre-arbitration. I mean, he won an MVP making damn near league minimum. <laughs> it's like it, it makes no sense. And furthermore, you make it 
they've now got to wait all this time even to get arbitration to maybe get the money they want, maybe get what the team says. And eventually after six years, you can get free agency, which is like we're just seeing Corey Seager, Carlos Square. These guys are finally really getting the money that they've been due. And God forbid you get a career-ending entry year five on that clock, and you're right there from signing a deal. And the other thing I like is a lot of this negotiation is your bigger names in baseball, you know, represent the players. So your Mike Trout's those bigger guys who are saying, hang on, let's leverage our importance and kind of cover the small guy. Because even if it's not someone who's going to make a huge impact, they still want to try and, you know, let's get some guys paid. Let's get them, you know, it's hard to say livable wage because you're still making over half a million dollars. Like you're still out earning doctors playing baseball. But compared to the revenue they're getting, and that's where the players' economic issues are coming in. Their salary in proportion to the revenue and the TV deals in baseball is nuts. And I'm saying that knowing full well we have at least 10, 350 plus million dollar contracts in the market signed right now. And it's still out of whack. Yeah, like you said, the the, the revenue being bought, being brought in by MLB keeps going up and up and up, but player salaries stay relatively stagnant, which is like like we've been talking about, one of the major uh, disputes between the two sides. And it seems, just from a rational perspective, that the players are right and they should be getting a bigger pay cut. I mean, they are the reason that people watch, so they should be getting paid more, especially these younger players. But, I mean, I think that kind of covers the lockout. I mean, it's it's you know not the most interesting stuff to talk about, this arbitration, financial deals, but it's important for them to continue to make progress. And I think the major takeaway is they met two days in a row. You know, I, I read that when, their, when they originally met face-to-face several months ago, the meeting lasted seven minutes because it was so contentious. They met face-to-face again this week, and it lasted over two hours. So progress is being made. You know, they're meeting on back-to-back days. I guess that's all we can really hope for at this point. We all want to see baseball. No one wants this to keep going on. Um, James, I mean, any last comments on the lockout talks? Yeah, I think that is, you know, there is some positive progress to take, and we can only hope that they roll this over and really get the financials agreed to, because then after that, I'm sure it will be another week or two negotiating some rule changes, some scheduling, um, some of the minutiae there, which will be more fun to talk about. You know, that's where we'll talk about maybe a National League DH, um, some rules, some some overtime rules, or uh, extra innings rules, I should say. Playoff so expansions. Yeah, there's and playoff expansion, which I hope happens. But that's a side note we'll get into maybe at a different time. But I think there's progress, and I think it's good, and we can really only hope that they keep buying in, get the job locked up, and let's get baseball. I mean, I was thinking the other day, I'm going to be devastated if we don't get a baseball season. I, I'm itching my neck. I'm scratching. I, you know, I cannot wait for baseball to happen, and I don't want to miss a single game. I'm greedy. I want all 162 plus playoffs, please. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, that kind of wraps it up for the lockout. Those were our two main topics, the Hall of Fame, obviously, and the lockout. James, I know you had some other things you wanted to talk about. We've got a a retirement. We've got some other things. I'll I'll let you just kind of go from here. Yeah, so just real quick, we had to keep with the tradition um, of – Retiring. This is not the fifth straight episode we've covered or retiring. This one is definitely our most grabbing at straws 
um, that we've done. I'm going to uh, be honest. Congrats. I didn't even know who this guy was. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the level of straws we're going at. But I will say I have a minimum, a very stern minimum criteria to celebrate a retirement. It's a thousand games played. This quote unquote veteran second baseman, as described by Bob Nightingale, uh, who did vote in the Hall of Fame, by the way, and voted correctly, in my opinion, which that's a whole nother thing. Just a side note, the writers have the option to not have their ballots be public knowledge. I think that's terrible. That needs changed because if you're going to vote against Barry Bonds and all that, I want to know who's voting. Um, and so that's a side tangent. But back to the main thing at hand, which is a congratulations for second baseman Gordon Beckman. Um, he retired. He was kind of funny. He had a nice little tweet joking since Buster Posey hopped out of the game. He's done. Um, truthfully, I couldn't tell you the connection there. Not even really worth getting into his stats. But he played <laughs> over 1,000 games. A great career. I mean, it's 1,000 more games than I'll play. 1,000 more games than most people will play. And, you know, it's still 10 years in the MLB. He made some money for himself. Got to probably throw some baseballs to some kids, make him happy. Good for him. And then... To wrap everything up, what I think is probably my favorite thing that I've seen uh, this week um, has to be out of one of the most likable players in the MLB, Jock Peterson. I mean, I would say Jocktober. Everyone loves him. I mean, even when he was smashing the Dodgers um, en route to his second straight World Series, I wasn't that upset. Of course, he won one with the Dodgers the year before, so um, can't hold a grudge. But it is non-baseball related from Jock Peterson, and there's this tweet kind of going around. Jock Peterson actually tweeted uh, a reply to it. That's how I saw it. Turns out Devontae Adams, very famous, very good NFL wide receiver, pretty much consensus top three no matter who you ask, and Jock Peterson were high school football teammates. They both played the wide receiver position. Uh, and contrary to what you would think, Devontae Adams actually was wide receiver two on his team. Jock Peterson was the leading option. Uh, and in that year, Jock Peterson had 30 – in the senior year, their senior year, Jock Peterson had 30 receptions, 650 yards for nine touchdowns, while Devontae Adams had 25 receptions for 484 yards and seven touchdowns. So in high school football, Jock Peterson was a better wide receiver – at least in the senior year, than Devontae Adams, who went on to play at Fresno State and is obviously a legend on the Packers right now. Max, what do you think about that? I don't know. I mean, maybe Jock Peterson made the wrong career choice. I mean, I've never seen him play football, but Devontae Adams is probably the best receiver in the NFL. So who knows how his talents would translate. I mean, Jock Peterson chooses to play good baseball one month a year, but um, – I don't know. Interesting. I, mean, I guess it's one of those things. <laughs> it's October. Maybe the uh, Falcons sign him uh, and we get a little bit of that Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders action. Uh, see if Jock Peterson still has it. Um, I highly doubt he does, and I can almost guarantee he would not sign that deal. But that's my favorite thing I saw in baseball with everything that's going on in the news cycle. Awesome story. Please let us know what you thought. Really, there's a ton to interact with. Did you like the intro? Should Barry Bonds be in? How do you see the Hall of Fame? All kinds of questions. You know, what do you think of the core economics? Whose side are you on? Players, owners. And I will say, we didn't say this, but just in the, not even in their defense, but one of the owners' positions is that they did almost all lose a huge amount of money from COVID. 
that's one of their arguments for why they're trying to recapture revenue. I don't care. Mute point to me. Um, but, you know, who do you think? Owners, players, Barry Bond, all kinds of great things. Uh, and, you know, let us know on Twitter, rounding third now. That is 3RD rounding third now. Uh, we're active.